Are you in the Christmas spirit yet? You getting there? What are some of the things that uh, you like to do to get the Christmas spirit going in your house? I guess that one of them is probably to indulge and immerse yourself in a Christmas story. One of the ways that we get ready for Christmas every year is by watching something like a Christmas movie, right? My favorite Christmas movie is Lord of the Rings. If you don't think that Lord of the Rings is a Christmas movie, let me tell you why it is. It's a story of a world covered in darkness, experiencing hopelessness, trapped in chaos, until something called the Ring of Power, or what Tolkien calls the One Ring to Rule Them All, is destroyed. But also, it's a story of a great king who is crowned and is king over all the earth. He defeats the, enemy, the, the armies of the enemy, pushes back the darkness, and ushers in an age of great and lasting peace. This king is not a tyrant. He's a peacekeeping king. Friends, this is the story of Christmas, is it not? Because it looks to the hope of light shining in the darkness. It looks to the coming of a great king, to the powers of evil being vanquished under the king's reign. And it looks to an age of lasting peace. Friends, this is the Christmas story after all. And Advent is the awaiting and the preparation of the arrival of the one king to rule them all. And he will usher in an age of lasting peace. Maybe you don't like Tolkien. But something that you probably can relate to is the longing and the need that you feel for peace. We all long for a day when darkness and evil are vanquished. For all that is wrong in the world to be undone and put to right. For the hope we see in fairy tales, friends, to be a reality for us. For peace to reign and to rule forever. The great thing is, friend, this is not just a fairy tale. The Bible is a story of this great coming king. One who has foretold and prophesied thousands of years before his coming. It's a story of a king who will reign And bring an age of peace, vanquishing all his and our enemies, and who has now begun to establish his reign. If you're saying, who is this king? How do I know what he's like? Well, let me show you from Psalm 110. And by just simply pointing out three things about what this king will be like. And I'll show you why it's Jesus. So the first thing you'll see and that we uh, get out of who is this king from Psalm 110 is that this king will be divine. Look down at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Notice there's a couple things going on here. Uh, There's two lords. Two lords. So we have to answer that. And this is also a psalm of David. David is the king of Israel writing this. So, let's unpack this. First, the two lords. The first lord 
is the Lord, that is God himself. That's the first Lord. You'll notice it's probably in all caps in your Bible. That signifies the personal name of God, Yahweh. That's the first Lord. The second Lord is David's Lord. This is someone that David acknowledges is greater than he is and who will sit next to God and rule at God's right hand. This is, which is a way of saying David's Lord will rule with God. So you ask, who is David's Lord? Isn't David the king of Israel? Whom would he call Lord? Well, it's a good question. To get the answer, we need to look at Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. He says, whose son is the Christ or uh, the Messiah the divine, uh, or the Messiah who was prophesied to be the king of Israel who would come and free Israel from oppression and deliver them their salvation. Whose son is, is the Messiah? And the Pharisees give the right answer. The Christ is a son, a descendant of David. So Jesus asked them the same question that we're asking here about Psalm 110. How then can David call anyone his Lord? especially one of his descendants who would have been born after him. You see, in Jewish culture, no one would call one of their descendants their Lord, let alone the king call one of their great-great-great-grandchildren their Lord. See, friends, the only way this is possible is if the Christ, the Messiah, is divine, which would make him greater than David, even though he would come after David. You see, friends, for David to say this, his Lord must be much more than a mere human descendant. And he must be greater than any and all earthly and temporal kings and kingdoms. So let's apply this to you and I. It begs the question, are there lesser kings and kingdoms? that we've put our hope and allegiance in, that have caused us to miss the one true divine king. This is what Jesus is asking and saying to the Pharisees. He's saying, you have false expectations and hope in a lesser king. See, the Pharisees wanted political domination over Rome. They wanted to overthrow uh, Roman authorities and the Roman government. But Jesus is saying... The true king is divine. He does not establish his kingdom here on earth. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are thinking too small. Jesus is pointing the Pharisees to what David wrote. He quotes Psalm 110, that David called the Messiah, the Christ, him, Jesus himself, Lord, because he's greater than David. And Jesus says, I am this divine king. But the Pharisees, they desire a kingdom, the kingdom of God, but they don't want the true king. They want something lesser. Or at least not how the king has truly revealed himself. So let me ask you gently, I'm asking this of myself all week, 
What temporal kings and kingdoms have we put hope in and placed our allegiance to that cannot deliver the kind of peace that only the true divine king is able to? What lesser kings to you do you look to that cause you to miss the true king or a greater kingdom? Or maybe you find yourself desiring the kingdom without the king altogether. You see, the thing is, friends, we can ask ourselves this and we need to because we all do this. It's the root of idolatry. To make a non-ultimate thing ultimate, even if that thing might be good in some ways. But it causes us to miss the true God, the true King as He's revealed Himself to us. So we need to examine ourselves by asking, am I missing the true king? So that's the first thing. He's divine. The second is that the king will rule over all. Now this has two parts to it. If you look at the end of verse 1 in Psalm 110 and verse 2, it says the king will rule over his enemies. That's the first part. The second is in verse 3, the king will be the ruler of his own people. So let's begin with the first part. He will rule over his enemies. His enemies will be subdued and made a footstool under his feet, it says. Now, to show you what this really means, we actually need to go back to a different prophecy about the divine king, the Messiah. We need to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Specifically, we need to look at Genesis 3.15. Now, in Genesis 3.15... After the very first humans, Adam and Eve fail to keep God's law and they disrupt his worldwide peace, the way God has ordered the world to be. God makes a promise to Eve and to the serpent, the deceiver. And God says to them, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, friends, this is the very first promise and prophecy of this same divine king that Psalm 110 is pointing to. He will rule over all. He will subdue all his enemies. Anyone who opposes and seeks to subvert his kingdom will not stand a chance against him. They will be crushed under his feet. Look at the end of verse 1 in Psalm 110. It's it's a very redundant verse in Hebrew, actually. It literally translates, Until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament points out in Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 that this is Jesus. It says, God put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and made him head over all. Jesus fulfills and will fulfill both Genesis 3 and Psalm 110. And something important that we see in Psalm 110 is that he actually rules in the midst of his enemies. Look at verse 2. That means that while he reigns and subdues and rules over his enemies, there is a clear time when the enemies of God may even seem to be flourishing. And yet, David says in verse 2, the king is still reigning. 
ruling, subduing them in the midst of them. What this means for us is that while this, the curse of sin still plagues it, you and I in the world that we live in very much, sin and God's enemies may seem to have a stronger foothold at times than God's kingdom even. But what you and I can see that David couldn't, that Adam and Eve couldn't see, is that the head of the serpent has been crushed. Meaning the defeat of the deceiver's enemies is imminent. It's already begun. This is part of Psalm 110 that is yet to be fulfilled for us, however. That while the defeat of God's enemies has begun in Christ and is sure to be completed, look at verse 4, he will not change his mind. You and I, we living in the in-between, we anticipate the return of the king to finally vanquish his enemies, making them a footstool under his feet. And yet he reigns. Jesus, friends, reigns in the midst of them now. And I'll show you how he does that in a little bit. But this means that there, friends, is nothing to fear. Nothing will stand against Jesus' church. Nothing will threaten his coming kingdom. No matter how dark things may seem at times. Now that's the first part. The second part is verse 3. He will rule his own people. Look, it says, your people will offer themselves freely. Meaning that once God's own flock see his majesty and his glory, they will willingly come and bow before him and worship him. This is Jesus' people offering themselves to the kingdom of God freely. But notice verse 3, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What, what the heck does this mean? The womb of the morning. David is saying the start of each day begins in the east. The sun rises and it begins every new day. It breaks the darkness of the night and reveals the newness of the morning, of the day. And the dew from the cold of the night is also revealed, which gives and sustains Life. Think of David living in Israel in the desert. There's not a lot of water. The dew sustains and creates life. It's saying that the Lord rules his own people by transforming them. By transforming each each of them, each and every day with every new sunrise and sustaining them by the dew of the morning. But it also means... That God's people are numbered like the dew. They're more than you can ever comprehend or count. In other words, there are so many of God's people being transformed each and every day that it's far beyond what any of us are able to comprehend. God's kingdom is full of new transformative life, friends. This is his kingdom. This is his reign like the life that the morning gives each and every day, transforming everything, shedding light on everything, breaking the darkness every day, sustaining life every day, bringing new 
people who were not once a part of his kingdom into his kingdom each and every day. He's creating new life, friends. But most of us sleep through the sunrise. We don't always see it. And yet God is at work. God is at work in a transformative kingdom. So bringing these two things together, what I want you to see in Psalm 110 is that Jesus' kingship, his reign, is not coercive. It's propelled by his beauty and his majesty that leads his own flock willingly to come to him. Willingly to come and bow before him in worship. Because we've been given new life. We've been transformed. We're sustained by him. Jesus' kingship and his kingdom is a transformational one. And it's far less obvious than we often are able to realize. But this is saying here in this text, have hope. Have hope. Not only is he reigning now, but he's reigning every day. He's transforming things every day. It's ongoing. He's numbering his flock far beyond what any of us can comprehend. And this is taking place like every sunrise. So that's the second thing. The final thing I want to show you is that the king will bring peace. The king will bring peace. Now go down to verse 4. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, I don't have a lot of time to unpack him, but he is both a king and a priest in the book of Genesis. He's the king of Salem. His name means king of righteousness. And there's a lot here, but what I have time to show you is two quick things. First, the priesthood of Melchizedek is the greatest priesthood in the Bible. And second, Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. So first, Melchizedek is the greatest priesthood in the Bible. What I simply have time to point out to you and what's helpful for our purposes here in Psalm 110 is that Melchizedek is a greater order of priests than the Levitical priesthood from the book of Exodus. The tribe of Levi is where the priests would come from in the life of Israel. We see that in Exodus, in the life of Israel. Melchizedek is long before them. His priesthood is greater. Two reasons why. He blesses Abraham, which is, who is the father of Israel. Abraham bows before him, is blessed by him, makes an offering to him. Second, Melchizedek never dies in the Bible. The author of Hebrews actually argues that he lived forever. That's the first reason why. Melchizedek is the greatest priesthood in the Bible. The second thing about Melchizedek is he is both a priest and a king. Genesis 14 points this out. It says he holds both offices. And friends, this is significant. The only other figure in the Bible to hold both offices is Jesus himself. There's kings in the life of Israel who try to take on priestly roles and they're cursed for it. And the priests, when they try to enact the power of the sword, they fail. God does not bless them. Melchizedek and Jesus are the only two in the Bible that are priest and king. Genesis points out that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Salem, shalom, peace, the king of peace. 
the king of the place, called Salem. He's also called the priest of the Most High God. And what happens is, Abraham, after this great battle, comes to Salem, and Melchizedek comes out and greets him with bread and wine. The king, the priest, invites Abraham to sit and rest at the table of the king, a table of great status, to participate in the meal of the king, to be blessed by a priest of the Most High God, to experience peace through participation in a heavenly meal led by a heavenly, divinely appointed priest of God. Friends, this is what Jesus does for us. He invites us to rest in his victory after a great battle where he finds victory and subdues and defeats his enemies. He invites us to a heavenly meal to be blessed by him, to participate in his kingdom of lasting peace. And this is not even something that David himself could do. He is only a king, only a man. See, Jesus is both perfectly priest and king. And Jesus is eternal. Meaning, the kingdom he establishes, the priesthood he establishes that he's a part of, the kingship he establishes is also eternal. His peace is eternal. You see, kings keep peace in their kingdoms. Priests make peace with God on behalf of the people. This is what Psalm 110 is saying for you and for me. It's saying, friend, if you long for peace, participate in the kingdom of Jesus. He is a king who will subdue all your enemies. He is a priest who will give you peace with God, who will feed you and bless you. He invites you to his table and to a heavenly meal. And he makes you a participant in his peace. But we live in the in-between, what we call the now and the not yet, where Jesus has come and vanquished sin and death and has begun to subdue his enemies through the simple, ordinary means of grace, bread and wine, the preaching of God's word, through prayer. He has begun to transform people, bringing them into his flock and bringing you, friend, into a kingdom of peace. He has made a way for us to be right with God by offering his peace to us. And we long for that day, though. While this has begun, we long for that day when he returns in all his glory to finish the work that he began in his first coming. When we will be full participants in his eternal kingdom, friends of kingdom of lasting and everlasting peace. Let's pray. O Lord, help us to present ourselves in all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to our final heavenly dwelling where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory 
and eternal peace. And all this happens through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.